baker's dozen of them or something out there. So I think they're $25, so that's that. And then also just real quick point of clarification and update. Uh, so Regina and JJ and I, we fly out, Lord willing, on Thursday to back to the mainland, and we will be there for several months. My oldest son Joshua is getting married, and so in, in March, um, we're going to take off after that. They're getting married in Oregon, so after that. So we'll be in Oregon for several months. Uh, the plan is at the end of March, beginning of April, uh, to head towards Germany, and so we'll try to keep you guys updated. If you're not on our email list, we'd love to add you to that uh, to keep you guys, um, you know, informed of what's going on. Amen? This is the part where I just want to talk about how much I love the church and all of that, but we're going to save that for later. Um, no, Austin, that's it. That's all you get. Uh, actually, what I want to do, guys, is just share with you um, from the Old Testament book of First Kings, uh, chapter 18. So turn to First Kings in your Bible, Old Testament, First Kings 18, and, um, you know, while you're getting there, just by way of introduction, I, I've known, like Pastor Steve said, for several weeks that, that I would be sharing this morning and knowing it would also be my last foreseeable time sharing here at the church. And so I just began to pray, you know, God, what do you want to say? You know, what, what do you want to do here? And just kind of kept praying that prayer and waiting and, and talking to the Lord. And then last week, I just felt like this passage kind of came rushing to my mind and my heart, and I felt like, yeah, I think this is it. And I can't even necessarily tell you why other than to say I feel like God wants to share a very simple pointed word to us in the, in the body of Christ. And um, so with that, I, I'm going to just, it's a long story and I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I am going to read a pretty good charge of it. So I'm going to ask you to start with me at chapter 18, verse 1. I'm going to read that and then we're going to skip down and read the rest of the story Please don't let your mind wander. Please don't think about how the Rams are going to destroy the Seahawks later today or anything like that. Um, try to just zero in with me. And then once we read it, I'm going to kind of go back, fill in some of the blanks, and just make hopefully a couple, with God's help, um, applications for us. Amen? All right. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. And after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20, so Ahab Sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, 
but put no fire to it. I will prepare another bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For all you are many and call upon the name of your God, put no fire to it. Then they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. They limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry out loud. He is a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried out aloud and they cut themselves, as was their custom, with swords and lances until the blood was gushing out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he prepared an altar, he, excuse me, repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the 12 tribes of the sons of Jacob, who, to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar there uh, in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sihas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people might know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you for your word. And this timeless, classic story, Lord, I pray that it would find its application in our hearts today. Awaken us to what you want to say to us. Lord, speak into our lives as a church, as individuals in this church. We just come to you, Lord, now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Whew, that was, a, that was a mouthful. How awesome of a story is that? How many of you guys remember that story from Sunday school or you've heard it before? Raise your hand if you know that story. So the vast majority of us, if you haven't heard that story, you're welcome. It's just an amazing story. 
It's it's literally one of the most epic like scenes, like 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 um, you know showdowns and displays of of God's power in the entire Bible. And there's so many you know applications and things we could pull for it from it, I should say. But I felt like God really just directed me towards this uh, to pull out one specific thing. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I'll start by just saying this, maybe preface it with this. Uh, in many of your Bibles, there's probably like a little header above the chapter that says something like, uh, Elijah takes on the prophets of Baal or Baal. Sometimes I say Baal, sometimes they say Baal, so forgive me if I interchange those. Or it'll say like the showdown with the prophets of Baal or Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And, or, or You guys understand what I'm saying? It's usually referred to as something like that. And that's not wrong. That's right. That's exactly what it is. But I think one of the reasons that the story kind of popped for me this time through, that, that maybe God drew me to the story again, is, is it is that. It's a showdown. Okay, and we'll talk about all of that in a moment. But what really got me is at the end when Elijah's praying. And he says, and God show them, you know, that you're God and that you're turning their, what? Their hearts back. And what kind of dawned on me, at least for me this time through, was yeah, this is a showdown between like God's prophet and the prophets of Baal and who's the real God and all of that. Yes, true. But it was really a battle for the hearts of God's people. God's people's hearts, listen, were divided. Their devotion to God was divided. And God was calling them back. And even the drought that had been going on was designed to bring them back. But it, it took this, this really dramatic event. Just keep that in mind as we go through because, guys, at the end of the day, this, this is what it's about. God is wanting to draw the hearts of God's people back to a full devotion to Him. And that's what we want to talk about. There's so much here. We could, you know, I, I had to cut my sermon short, really, at first service. But this is second service, and there's no time limit. So we're just going to go and go. No, not really, because we will get hungry at some point. I do want to just fill in some of the blanks, tell a little bit of the story. The story actually starts earlier, chapter 17 in verse 1, where Elijah just all of a sudden, without any kind of introduction, just kind of appears onto the pages of Scripture. It just says, and Elijah the Tishbite, whatever a Tishbite is, he was one of those, and he shows up, and the first thing that it says in chapter 17, verse 1, I'm paraphrasing, is he approaches the king at the time of the northern uh, part of Israel called Israel. He, he um, approaches King Ahab, and he basically proclaims to King Ahab, listen, God has told me to tell you there will be no more rain in this land until I say so. I'm not sure how um, King Ahab took it at the time, probably brushed it off. What Elijah was pronouncing was something that God said would happen if God's people would disobey them and walk away from them. Do you guys remember this from Leviticus, from Deuteronomy? One of the consequences of their disobedience, he says, I will shut up the heavens. And that was everything to them, you guys. They, they survived agriculturally. And he says, I'm bringing a drought. Why? Not so much to punish them, but to get their attention. Something's wrong with our relationship, so I'm going to let your world fall apart a little bit. And he says, it's not going to rain again until I say so. I'm sure Ahab brushed him off, but Elijah just went his way, and for three and a half years, it didn't rain. Just want to give a little backstory as to why it was such a severe move. Ahab was probably the worst king 
that Israel ever saw. He was wicked. He reigned in the uh, 9th century, um, 900th, in, 18, in 800 something BC. That's what I'm trying to say. Somewhere in there. And he was like the worst uh, king Israel ever had. He was wicked. Probably the most wicked thing that he did was he got married to a woman named Jezebel. That was his major mistake. He was the first of the Israeli kings to marry a pagan wife like that. She was a Sidonian princess from the Phoenician area on the coast there, if you're looking at your map. Now, what was brutal about this was when he married Jezebel, you guys, you guys remember the name Jezebel? Yeah, like when, you don't name your kid Jezebel, right? Because she is associated with everything like um, sensual, deceitful, cruel. She's a power-hungry uh, I mean, Jezebel Harris, I mean, Jezebel was, I'm sorry, please edit that out of the teaching if you caught that. I kind of apologize for that. But everything associated with her was wicked and for good reason. He married her and what she did when she came into that marriage, she was a power-hungry woman who brought with her the full-on cultish worship of Baal. Now, Baal, you would read about him before her. Uh, the Canaanites before Israel worshipped like a, a form of worship of Baal. He was in their pantheon. Um, his name means Lord or owner, so you'll see his name attached in a compound word like owner of this or Lord of that. But when she brought in this worship, it was the full-on, full-blown Phoenician cult worship of Baal. He was the chief god of their pantheon. In their mythology, he defeated their number one god, who was the god of the sea, and he became the, the, the number one god. And his was a realm of ruling over everything that has to do with fertility. So that would mean that he controlled the weather, the rain, so that it would rain on the crops. He spun the seasons so that, you know, the, the crops would come. Their whole life resolved, revolved around the crops. You understand why this is important to them? And so they would get tied into that. And so um, he was like the chief god of all these things, overseeing, um, you know, the rain for the crops, the food for the animals, and even human sexuality and, and reproduction in that way. And so that the worship of him was coupled with, and you'll read about this in your Bible all the time, a, a goddess named Asherah. You guys remember Asherah? You guys read about Asherah? And associated with Asherah was what they were called Asherah poles. And she was this goddess that was evidently his mother, but at the same time his mistress, and it was kind of convoluted and weird and, and crazy. The point is, is that when Baal and Asherah would come together sexually, it would produce the rain and the seasons and the fervent sexual activity of them would bring the, the fertility to the people. So the worship of Baal, this is where it gets a little sordid here, you guys. The worship of Baal, there would always be on the high places... A, an idol of, of, of Baal, and right next to it, an Asherah pole, and the people would engage in sexual acts at, on those spots, and the whole idea was this concept of, of sympathetic magic. In other words, by engaging in those sexual acts, they were trying to demonstrate and encourage the gods and what they wanted them to do so that they would produce this rain and all the stuff in the seasons. Does that make sense? Guys, it was tied into their culture. It was tied into their agriculture. It was tied into the flesh of their you know, the lust of their flesh. And this idolatrous, sick, pagan worship infiltrated into Israel and caught on, and it just became normative. As crazy as that may sound, it became normal. 
And she was so wicked, she brought that in. But she was not only just passive about that, she was direct about that. And she was ordering the murder of God's prophets. She was trying to wipe out the actual worship of Jehovah. This was a wicked, 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 wicked woman. So her and Ahab together were just, I mean, that is why Elijah finally comes and says, look, there's going to be no rain until you repent, was the idea. By the time we get to chapter 18, three and a half years have gone by. Elijah shows up to King Ahab, and I'll just kind of, I'm just going to retell it a little bit. I won't go too far here, but in verse 17, he shows up to Ahab. Did you notice, by the way, Ahab's response? Elijah, they had been looking everywhere for him, by the way. They finally see him, and he's like, you're the one who's troubled Israel. And he's like, I'm not the one who's troubled. It's like little kids fighting on the playground. Like, you're the one. No, you're the one. No, you're the one. And Elijah's like, no, you are, because you guys, you have departed from God's commandments, and that's why this is happening. And then he proposes this showdown. He says, here's what I want you to do, Ahab. And I love this, that Ahab's the king, but Elijah's calling the shots. I just love that. Elijah says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to gather all of Israel. I want you to gather the 450 prophets of Baal. I want you to gather the 400 prophets of Asherah. And we're going to the top of of Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, beautiful, beautiful place in Israel. This mountain range that goes right around the Mediterranean Sea. At its height, it's about 1,700 feet up. It is lush. Its name means something like garden place. It is just absolutely, in the spring, the flowers cover it. It's known just to be this fertile, beautiful, wonderful, amazing spot. And he calls everybody up there. I don't know how many people of Israel showed up, probably thousands. Think about this, thousands of people, 850 priests of this false god, the king himself, Ahab, and one representative for God, (laughs) Elijah. Talk about intimidating. He brings him up there. And you can almost see it in your mind's eye, you know, just people as far as the eye can see. And he gets the mic, so to speak, and he says to the people, not to, to the prophets, not, not to the king necessarily, to God's people. Please don't lose me on this. He says to them, come close to me, and they come close to him. And he asks a question, and this is what he says. Listen, it was a challenge. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Jehovah is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. And they didn't answer him a word. Isn't that powerful? What's he doing here? He's saying, guys, it's time to be honest. It's time to be honest with yourself, and it's time to be honest before God. How long are you going to do this? How long are you going to play this game, he said to them? Limping between two opinions. The word limping there, whatever translation of Bible you have, it's translated as something different. Um, hobble, waver, falter, limp. It literally means this, to, have, to waver mentally, to vacillate, to think in, in an unsuitable or unstable manner, bouncing back between commitment of two persons or ideas. The shifting of weight from one leg to the other. He's like, this is what you're doing. You say you're committed to God, but then you go and you you worship Baal. You say you're committed to God, you worship Baal. How long are you going to do this, he said to them. They were living this duplicitous life where they enjoyed being called God's chosen people. Maybe even drifted down into Judah for one of the annual feasts. Kind of took pride in their identity of, yes, we're Israel, God's chosen people. 
But on the day-to-day, they were just sucked into the current of where culture was going, and they were worshiping Baal, and they were doing what everybody else did, and it was very culturally accepted, and they were kind of just, you know, didn't want to be too radical about God. They were just kind of living in both worlds. And what does he say? Enough of that. It's time to make a decision. You can see where this is going, yeah? Well, they didn't, let me finish the story, then we'll come back to that. They didn't answer a word. They just kind of sat there, whatever. Well, the the showdown continues, and I'll just, you know, we read it, so we don't have to go into it a ton, but the showdown goes goes on, and um, Elijah says, okay, guys, you start first, you nine, almost 900 prophets. Why don't you grab your bull, put it up there, put it on the altar. They had evidently knocked down the altar of God that was up there, and they had put up this altar to Baal, and they just, they put their altar up there or their animal on the altar. Oh, by the way, little note, I didn't know this until I traveled to Israel, and our tour guide told us this, but um, notice like three or four or five times he says, and don't put fire on it, and don't put fire on it, and we won't put fire on ours, and you don't put fire on yours. Because evidently, what the prophets of Baal would do is they built into the back of their altar, these big altars, they built this little place where they kindle a fire and stoke it. And when the people were like getting all crazy, they like stoke it up and like, like fire would come up from the middle of the altar and people would be like, ah, Baal. And he was on to their shenanigans. And he's like, um, I already know how you do that, so don't do that. This is just going to be level playing ground here, guys. So he says, do that, and, and you call upon your God, and then I'll call upon my God. So they started in the morning, and I'm sure they had all their all garb on. They looked very spiritual, and they had all their robes and their whatever they did to, to look pseudo-spiritual and all this. And they're calling on Baal, oh, Baal, whatever, da-da-da. And they're calling on him, and it goes on for like, like 20 minutes and like, like half hour and like, like an hour. And then it's like noon. And aren't you guys glad I said this first service? I, I'm so glad. God included in God's sovereignty that Elijah mocked them. How, I just love the humanness of that. I'm just, like, you can't make this stuff up. So Elijah, you can almost see him like over in the corner just watching them, maybe having lunch, eating a sandwich, be like, hey, call louder. <laughs> you know, eating his lunch. Probably didn't happen anything like that. At one point, he's like, he's probably in the bathroom. You know, wake him up. He maybe went on a trip. I just love the fact that he's straight up, no apologies, making fun of them. Amen. And all of God's people said, no. <laughs> so he mocks them, he mocks them. He goes on until like three in the afternoon. You can, it doesn't say this, but you go on almost imagine. They, guys, all joking aside, it gets demonic. They start cutting themselves. They start, I mean, this is straight up devilish. Just crazy. They're like blood squirting out and they're calling out. Who wants to worship a God that you got to get his attention by cutting and bleeding? And like, This is crazy. Enough's enough. You'll, you get the sense they've had it. You get the sense the people have had it. Everybody's tired. Nothing's happening. Finally, like around 3 o'clock, around the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah just, you get the, the sense when you read it very calmly, very cool. He just gathers the people. They're all kind of around him. Kind of resets up the 12 stones that have been knocked down. Each stone represented one of the 12 tribes or families of Israel. Sets it up. Puts the wood. I'm sure it took some time to get the bull, you know, slaughtered and killed and cut, and, and he puts it up there, and then he goes, you know what? This would be fun. Let's pour water on it. There was natural springs up there. You, they get these huge jugs of water. They start dumping water on it, and he goes, you know what? Do it again. Dumped it again. Let's do it a third time. A third time, they dump so much water that it fills up this whole trench. There's like a little moat, if you would, around 
the, the altar, and as if he was saying, look, we're going to make this abundantly clear. There's no trickery involved. You're not going to be able to accuse me of, like, lighting a fire. This, there's going to be no question as to what's happening here. You guys catch that? And then probably one of the most climactic moments, I, after hours and hours and hours of false prophets calling out to a false god, cutting themselves, jumping around like idiots, Elijah says a 15-second prayer and fire comes down from heaven. I timed it three times. 15 seconds. Let me read it to you because it only takes 15 seconds. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day, you are God in Israel, and I'm your servant, and I have done all this according to your word or at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that, that's a reasoning word, this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Or NIV translates it, you're turning their hearts back. I was telling first service that I wish we could just do a whole Bible study on this 15-second prayer. There's so much to learn about prayer in this 15-second prayer. Do you guys see the passion with which he's praying? Oh, God, answer me, answer me. He's praying with passion, but he's praying for the glory of God. He says, send down fire. Why? So everybody can think I'm the man? No, he says, so that everybody knows you're God, that there's a God in Israel. It's not about me, my glory, this nation. It's about you, God. You need to show yourself strong. There's so much we can learn about this. And then, to me, this is one of the most telling things about this story, and I alluded to it earlier, and he adds this on, and I've never caught it before this. He says, and that you're turning their hearts back. Do you guys understand that this is what it was all about? God was trying to get their heart. The whole reason for the famine for three and a half years was to get their heart. Do you guys understand that God didn't need to do this? God had no need of proving that he was God. That doesn't improve his standing with himself. He was doing this for their benefit. He could have said, you guys have rebelled and lived a lie long enough. I'm done with you and washed his hands and walked away. But God in his mercy and his grace says, you got it, Elijah. And boom, fire from heaven comes down and barbecues that bull on the spot. And even, it says it even like burn the dust. Can you burn dust? And rocks and the waters evaporated. Crazy. And the people, no more passive lackadaisical, not a word response. They fall on their faces flat down and scream out, the Lord, Jehovah, that's what that means. The Lord, he's God, he's God, you win, he's God. Now we got a response out of him. And then he orders the murder, or not the murder, I guess it's kind of murder, that kills all of the prophets of Baal, slaughters them. It's a great story. I mean, keep reading, it gets even, it's awesome. I was really questioning, like, God, why in the world would you have me have this as my last sermon (laughs) at Calvary Chapel North Shore? And the simple point of it is the message that Elijah gives to them is a message that I think every single Christian at some point in their life, and for many of us at various points in our life, We need to hear it. There's people in this room today, 
You need to hear this word. And the first word, the first thing I'm talking about is this. Elijah says to them in verse 21, it's time to make a decision. It's time to stop playing games. How long are you going to do this, he said to them. How long are you going to take pride in the fact that you are one of God's chosen people, Israel, that you can participate in the yearly feasts, that you can kind of claim that, but at the very same time, you're going out and you're acting like the, the, every common person and pagan in this area. You're participating in idol worship. You are living this duplicitous life, and it's making me sick. Why would you say it? It doesn't say to make him sick. Yeah, but Jesus said in Revelation, you are neither hot and you are neither cold. You're lukewarm, so I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. This is a heavy word. But he says, it's time to choose. Pick a lane. But this time for duplicity, this time for this game playing, he says, how long are you going to do this? And for some, we need to hear this. It's time to stop trying to mix your Christian faith with other faiths and New Age movement and this and that. No, there's truth. It's in the Bible. It's God. Jesus Christ is God. He died on the cross for your sins, and he raised from the dead three days later. He ascended on high into heaven. He has sent his Holy Spirit to those who put their faith in him, and he's coming back to rule and reign. That's truth. And some of you need to choose today to receive the forgiveness that God is offering through his son Jesus and give your life to him today. You've played church long enough. You've delved into the world long enough. You're not ever going to find what you're looking for out there. You're hungry and longing for a relationship with the God who created you through Jesus Christ. Choose him today, amen? But for those of us who know him, how easily, and myself included, in fact, I'm at the top of the list here. I'm not pointing my bony finger at you. We drift toward lukewarm. We drift toward mediocrity. We drift toward duplicity. We want to play the game. We want to have a foot in church and we want to have a foot in the world. We want things on our terms. We want to give into the flesh. We naturally do that. But there comes a time, maybe a couple times during your life, we have to kind of stick a foot in the ground and say, no, no more. And you need to make a decision. Choose Decide who's God and then follow him. Follow him. Some of you guys need to make a decision today. Are you going to follow Christ or not? Is he your God or is he not? If he's not, then cool. Then go and live in the world and do your thing. But if he is who he says he is, then follow hard after him. But to live this duplicit kind, I don't even know if that's a word, this, this double life, one, you're going to be miserable. And two, you're ruining the witness for the rest of us. You're hurting the name of Christ. You can't claim to be a Christian and live like the world. It just doesn't work like that. The culture's not going to like it. Your friends may not like it. But some of us in this room... There wasn't actually that many first service. There was a few. And the one guy came up to me afterward and said, you have no idea God spoke this exact word to me last night. So I know I'm not hitting the masses, but I know I'm hitting a few. Some of you in this room need to stop playing games, make a decision, and decide if you're going to be a Christian and live for Jesus or not. 
and follow him. Make a decision and then follow him. Somebody said something to me after first service. They said, you know, it's not that I haven't chosen Jesus. It's just that I'm not following him. I've gotten lazy, he said. To follow implies effort. It implies intentionality. It implies being dedicated to something and being proactive. What we're not talking about here is pledging, I'm never going to sin again. I'll be the perfect. No, 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 no. Do you guys understand that that's not what's happening here? He's not saying, be perfect and never screw up again, and then you'll be righteous. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, just with your whole heart, pick a lane and go, but stop playing games. I know you're not going to be perfect, but where's your heart? Follow after me with your heart. How many of you guys remember David in the Bible? He was a man after God's own heart. He was an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. Probably not even half of you are that. Do you understand? He's not, he understands that we're not, more than any of us, God understands we are not perfect. He's not saying be perfect. He's saying, but I want your whole heart. I want your whole heart. Some of us need to choose and then follow, follow, follow. One of the things I like to say sometimes is nobody accidentally trips and falls into a deep, intimate, amazing relationship with Jesus. You know, I was just going through the, my day and all of a sudden I'm just so close to Jesus. I'm not saying he can't come to you. I'm not saying he can't appear to you. But what I'm saying is a relationship with God is much like any other relationship. It takes input and effort. If you don't spend time with your wife, you're not going to know your wife very well. If you don't spend time with your kids, you're not going to know your kids very well. If you don't spend time with God, you're not going to know God very well. And we've taken this lazy, like, well, if it happens to me, great attitude. But guys, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are born again. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you. Now chase after God. There's, there's something to be said that we're so scared sometimes to talk about spiritual disciplines because we're so afraid of getting legalistic. Nobody's talking about being legalistic. But do you know what the first Christians did? I'm talking the moment they got born again and baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and, and then baptized in water. You know what they were? It says daily they were in the temple. They were gathering together. They, it says they were devoted themselves. And in the Greek, it's a double word, devoted, devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to prayer, to fellowship, and the, and the breaking of bread. They said, we will meet together. We will be in the word together. We will pray together. We will take communion together. And what I'm trying to get at, guys, is don't take a passive approach to your relationship with God, which is the most important relationship in your life. We gotta stop looking at church as optional. We gotta stop looking at gathering together with other Christians as optional if I feel like it or if it's not raining. We gotta stop looking at reading our Bible, praying, being at the prayer meeting, pressing into the things of God. Well, I just don't feel like going. I know, get over it. That's part of growing up as a Christian. Get over yourself and not feeling like it and do it anyway. Well, I just wasn't into that worship song, so I didn't. Get over yourself. It's not about you. Worship God with all your heart. Put your eyes on him. Forget about you. It's about him. You guys, I'm not trying to sound like a jerk or hard. This is a pathway to freedom. This is a pathway to intimacy. It's not about you got to keep the rules. It's about when your eyes are on God and you're pursuing him, man, follow him. Where he's going, go. Jesus said stuff like this when he said, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. He says elsewhere, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus laid out this same principle that we're talking about in Matthew 6, 24, when he says, no man can serve two masters. 
He will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. If you have chosen to follow Christ, can I just give you an exhortation this morning? Then follow him proactively. Just like you're not going to trip and fall and become a professional athlete, you're not going to trip and fall and become this amazing, deep-rooted, robust, awesome Christian. What I mean by that is just like an athlete has daily disciplines and things that they do, there's spiritual disciplines. We've got to spend time with God. We've got to spend time with the body of Christ. We've got to be in the Word of God. We've got to be in prayer. Why is the prayer meeting the last meeting that anybody ever goes to? I'm sorry, but that's my heart. <laughs> Besides, Steve can't fire me. I'm leaving Thursday. I say whatever I want. Now, with that challenge laid out. Because that's what he did. And it's not a new message. It's like I said, Jesus said the same thing. Joshua said the same thing when they entered the land. He said, look, if, you wanna, if it seems evil to you to worship God and you want to worship the God of the Canaanites, then go do it. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Right? So this is, this is a repeated message that, that gives me the impression that we need to every once in a while hear this where you draw a line and you say, who are you going to serve and follow? Stop playing games. Repent. But here's the thing that got me about this story. See, I just gave you a pretty passionate application of this. Elijah, no doubt, known as a passionate guy, gave them a passionate plea. Same thing. Choose today. If God's God, follow him. If not, don't. But do something. And what was the people's response? They didn't say a word. They weren't convinced. See, if all I'm doing right now is just I'm up here cheerleading you to follow Christ, it's, it's going to last until you get to your car. See, what needs to happen is something I can't do, that only the Holy Spirit can do. When did the people actually respond? When the fire from heaven came down on the sacrifice. Every time you read about the altar in the Old Testament, it always foreshadows the place of sacrifice, the cross, where God the Father sacrificed his own son Jesus as the Lamb of God on a cross where he died as a substitution for you and for me. Amen? And my point is, you know, part of this is like, yeah, with our head, we got to choose where we're going to serve. We got to be disciplined. Yeah, but you know what? We also need, we need a revival of the heart. And where does that happen? At the cross. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? We need to see Jesus on the cross dying for our sins. Me getting up here trying to rah-rah you to live for Christ and pick a lane and what are you going to do? That, I mean, it's true and it's right, but what actually makes it take? It's when your heart and my heart is revived and where does it get revived? At the cross. When we see Jesus, the Son of God, the righteous one who didn't deserve to die for anything, and he's hanging there naked and bleeding out and dying and suffering and trying to suck air in, and he's doing that all because of my sin, my lust, my lies, my bitterness. And Jesus was treated like an adulterer and a fornicator, and a child molester, and a murderer. 
so fornicators and adulterers and child molesters and murderers could go to heaven. He died in our place. And we need to see deeply how much we've been forgiven. You see, when a person encounters that, this is my point, when you see it, and I don't mean with your eyes, but when you see it, when you're, the blinders are kind of taken off, and that's what I'm talking about. We need a, a work of the Holy Spirit to do this. When you get it, when the Spirit of God ministers to you, the depth of the love that God has for you, that he would die for you on the cross like that, guess what? Nobody has to tell you to choose Jesus. <laughs> Nobody has to tell you to follow Jesus. Nobody has to get up here and tell you to read your Bible. Nobody has to tell you to pray, because you know why? When you are floored by what Jesus has done for you, you know what the natural response is? You give your life to him. You fall on your face and say, I am totally yours. I don't have to go to church. When's it open? I got to get there. I don't have to read my Bible. I can't wait to read my Bible. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't have to serve God. How can I serve you, God? And there's a complete shift once your heart realizes how much you have been loved and forgiven when you don't deserve it. Amen? I'll end with this story. It's a familiar one from Luke 7, if you're curious. and I'll just summarize it. To me, it's kind of, it's just telling, I guess. The story is, is that, it's not a story, it's actually happened, but um, Jesus is invited to this Pharisee's house. And I'm not exactly sure what the guy's motive was. He has a lot of other people there. But he's feeling pretty self-righteous and high and mighty, and he brings Jesus in, and honestly, he's quite rude to Jesus. He doesn't follow any of the customs of the day, doesn't wash his feet, doesn't anoint his head with oil. He's kind of very just like, I'm, I, I'm allowing you in my home, but I'm actually better than you kind of attitude. In that crowd, in that group that day was this woman, maybe a prostitute, maybe some kind of, like, evidently she had a reputation. She was referred to as a sinner, and that conjures up the fact that you don't associate with her, especially if you are a religious person. And she is broken. She's like convulsing and crying and literally wiping his feet, washing his feet. So since the the host didn't have the common courtesy to wash Jesus' feet, she's doing it with her tears and her hair. Religious guy is scandalized, thinking to himself, well, if this guy was a rabbi, he would know what kind of woman is touching him right now. Jesus has none of that. He says, you know, can I ask you something? Say on, master. Guy says self righteously, I came through your door. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. He's saying you didn't do any of the customary, courteous things to do. And this woman hasn't stopped anointing my feet with her tears. And he sets this guy straight in a rebuke. And he says, You know what? Her sins, which are many, doesn't deny it, are forgiven. So she loves much. What does he say? To he who has been forgiven much, loves much. To he who has forgiven little, loves little. Now let me ask you a question. Do any of us have little to be forgiven of? Only if you're self-righteous. Only if you think you're not that bad. Only if you think you're really not as bad as a sinner as the Bible says you are. But when you get a glimpse of the fact of what you deserve and what you've done against God and how rebellious have you been and broken you are and you realize that God loves you anyway and loves you and died for your sins on the cross, that man, that woman loves much. Amen? This is a battle for your heart. Satan wants your heart. This world wants your heart. But God's fighting for your heart today. And he's done the unthinkable. He gave his own life to die for things he didn't do. He died for your things, my things, that you would put your faith in him and trust him and follow him. Amen? Choose today who you're gonna serve.
Is there anybody in here today, just think for a minute, don't respond yet. I'm going to have you respond because I think it's stupid to me to have a sermon like this and not do something about it. To me, that's just religion. It's dumb. Some of you need to respond today. Again, I know I'm not hitting the masses. I get it. There might be one or two of you in here, though, that need to say, you know what? I've been playing games. I've chosen Christ. It's not like I'm not a Christian. It's not like I'm completely off in left field, but I'm not following him. Or maybe you're here like, no, I'm... I am playing a game, and I need to follow Jesus, and I'm, I'm going to follow him today. And I need him to change my heart, and I need my heart revived. But I see today that God's fighting for my heart, and he loves me. He didn't have to do this. And I'm going to ask you to do this. I didn't do this for a service. I just feel led to do this right now. If God spoke into your heart today, and there might be one of you, I'm going to ask you to do something bold, but it's actually safe because we're at church, and everybody here loves you and is on your side. But I'm going to ask you in a moment, not yet, to stand up. Because if you can't stand for Jesus at church, you're not going to be able to stand for Jesus out there. Not at, listen, this is not a, I promise to never sin again and be perfect, promise keepers kind of a thing. This is, I'm a mess, but I love Jesus, and I just want to follow him. And I need his grace to do so, but I, want, I don't want to play games anymore. And maybe he's already put his finger on something. that You need to delete that app. You need to cut that friendship off. You need to sever that relationship. You need to do what it takes. You need to start going back to church. You need to be in the word of God. Maybe he's got some practical things. But more of it, for, for some of you, it's a hard thing. Where today, you've got to make a stand and say, enough games. I need to follow Jesus. I got sucked into the world again. I want to stand for him. If that's you, stand up right now, and we just want to pray for you guys. If anybody is in here, God bless you, brother. God bless you guys. Yep. <laughs> Praise God. Listen, let's pray for these, our brothers and sisters. Let's pray for each other. Lift, if you're standing, lift your hands up to Christ. Lift both your hands. Lift the, both hands on a leg, whatever you can get up there. But let's just cry out to God. When we lift our hands, Lamentation 3 tells us we're lifting our heart with our hands. We're just expressing outwardly what, what's going on inwardly. And we lift our hands to you, God. We lift our hearts to you, God. I pray in the name of Jesus for my brothers and my sisters, my friends. Lord, they love you. They want to serve you. God, they're not some special case where they've gotten sucked in. We're all susceptible to that. But Lord, they're standing because they recognize it. And I pray in the name of Jesus, you would help them right now. Do whatever it takes to just say in their heart, even if they have to say it to others around them, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to play a game anymore. God, solidify that choice in their heart. Bless them. And I pray, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would baptize them with the power of your Holy Spirit because we can do nothing without you. We can't make promises and, and this and that without the power of your Spirit. We can do nothing. Fill them afresh, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And let's all stand together for a moment. Let's all stand. Father, we also just pray with hands lifted high, God, we pray that you would revive our hearts. Thank you that you have chased after our hearts. Thank you, God, that you love us. Would you reveal to us again, Lord, one more time, would you reveal to us one more time how much you love us? Would you show us and open our eyes to the cross and help us to see how deeply forgiven and loved we are? Oh, God, make it real. You have to become real to us, God. You have to become real. 
God, we can't run on concept. Please be real in our lives. Awaken our souls, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord.